This is Ron Stockton. I want to take you back in time, just after the glaciers melted, to tell you about courtship and how I found my wife. Even in those ancient times, we had gotten beyond having parents choose spouses for their children. I grew up in an age when we were allowed to choose our own spouse. But free choice was not all it was cracked up to be. That meant you actually had to find someone. And by you, I'm thinking of the guy. Women had their own ways of navigating this treacherous environment. Somehow, I ended up with an amazing person. On our 50th anniversary, I decided to write up a description of how that happened. Of course, I decided to write with a twinkle in the eye. I should warn you that when my granddaughter sat in our living room and read this, they laughed out loud a couple of times at the story of how their grandparents came to be together. At one point, one of the girls said to me, You are a creeper. I vehemently denied it, but in reality, I'd never heard that term before. Still, it was obviously not a compliment. I told those girls that this was not creeperism, but courtship. I'm not sure that they believed me. Anyway, here is the story. In the fall semester of 1960, I started my sophomore year at Southern Illinois University in Carbondale. I had spent my freshman year stag and decided it was time to find a girlfriend. Since I had no car, no money, no wardrobe, no social skills, no experience with women, a weak GPA, and a cowlick that flew in the air like the cartoon character Dagwood, I decided to aim high. The girl I was looking for would be pretty, charming, stately, popular, poised, intelligent, from a good family, and most of all, would like me. I also wanted a Southern Illinois girl because, as they say, whatever happens, she's seen worse. It was not clear exactly how I was going to turn this delusion into reality. Still, I set out on my quest. My techniques were primitive, to say the least. There was no e-harmony in those days. So, in each of my classes, I looked around to see who might be interesting. My one-hour class in Air Force ROTC was a bust since it was all guys. Chemistry was also a waste since I was sitting in the front row and could not see anyone behind me. The best chance seemed to be in my introduction to psychology. There were probably 50 of us crammed shoulder to shoulder in a hot room in the agriculture building. There were several attractive women in that class, but one was like a dream. She was pretty, poised, had beautiful dark hair, and was very friendly with the people around her. She also seemed to know the answers to every question the professor asked and was obviously very intelligent. I was definitely interested. The problem was how to find out her name. While Dr. Carrier did not take roll, he did pass around a sign-up sheet each day. I figured out that if I sat in the row where the babe sat, I could read the class list to see her name. Given that students instinctively sit in the same seat every day, I probably created some confusion for other students when I disrupted the self-assigned seating arrangement by moving around, but I did not care. The potential beloved one was waiting to be identified. Within days, I had her name, Jane Williams. It took me a while to get up the nerve to approach her, but when the professor handed back an examination, I saw my chance. I rushed up to her as she walked back towards the center of the campus and used my best pickup line. Hey Jane, how did you do on the exam? The sad reality is that when a dorky guy tries to hit on a pretty girl, it often does not end, turn out well. If this had been New York City, she would have told me to bug off or would have called a cop, but it was Southern Illinois where people are a bit more polite. She just looked at me as if I were from Mars and said, are you in my class? 
I tried to assure her that I was in her class and was a fine person who deserved her attention, but she was not convinced. On subsequent days, she always seemed to be out the door and on her way before I could accost her. I was beginning to lose hope. But then the professor reminded us that we would have a compulsory visit to the local mental institution. It was one of those old-style hospitals with a big building in the middle of a fenced-in, tree-covered grounds. In those days, such facilities were very common. There was a sign-up sheet passed around with three different time options. I kept delaying my choice, waiting to see my dream girl's name on the list, but it never appeared. Finally, I admitted defeat and signed up for the trip. It was a Saturday. When I got on the bus, I could not believe my luck. There she was, looking fresh and delightful. Moreover, she was sitting by herself. I thought of that Wordsworth poem. She was a vision of delight when first she came upon my sight. I greeted her by name as if we were old friends and plopped myself down. She was in the window seat, so I could easily block any attempt at escape. This was my chance, the moment I had dreamed of. I can't imagine that I had anything of interest to share with her, especially given that I must have been manically excited at my good fortune. But somehow the conversation kept going. When we got out and began to walk around, we started talking about the people in the facility. When we got to the senility ward, I told her of my dear aunt, who was in the early stages of what we would today call Alzheimer's. Her parents had both become senile before they died, and she had always feared that she herself would be afflicted. Now she was. Somehow during the afternoon, the conversation became more natural and less a staged effort by a geeky guy trying to win over a beautiful girl. Jane was so popular that she had set a goal of dating seven guys in seven days. She stalled at six. I was one of them, which might explain why she agreed to go out with me the first time. Later, she said she liked me better than any of the other guys trying to snag her because I seemed to be a kind person and would talk to her about interesting things. She also said I made her laugh. I'm not sure, but I think on that hospital day, I had her by the time we reached the senility ward. Our first actual date was the Saturday after Thanksgiving. We went to a basketball game at a local high school, championship veterans against current team. I picked Jane up at her house. When I arrived, I was greeted by her lovely mother. I know the guys can be shallow about superficial things, but I always thought it was important to remember that a pretty young thing would look like her mother in 20 years. Jane's mother was charming and very attractive, and is still charming and attractive at age 97. She was also her class valedictorian, as was Jane. This match would certainly help upgrade the gene pool. When I came in, she asked my name and introduced me in a loud voice to Jane's grandfather, who lived with him. Dad, this is Ron Stockton. It was not until many months later that Jane confessed that she did not know my last name and had asked her mother to find out for me. I know there is a secret network of women conspirators dedicated to outmaneuvering men, but this is one conspiracy that I consider acceptable. Our first few dates were typical Southern Illinois collegiate dates, football and basketball games, gymnastic events, stock car races, free movies, walking around the campus lake, going to the Italian restaurant. Almost everything was Dutch treat. There was also a theater company on campus. They put on five plays a year, season tickets, 250. Jane had two season tickets, so we went to all of them. Because the girls' dormitories were locked at 1030, 1 o'clock on Saturday, much of our dating was over the telephone. This was an additional bonus. 
Not only did Jane have the softest of hands, she also had the happiest voice I had ever heard. I told her that I fell in love with her hands and her voice before I fell in love with her. We had a wonderful courtship. When the first semester ended, I suggested that we walk over to the psychology building where there was a bulletin board with the grades posted. There were hundreds of grades covering all the students in the introductory psychology sections. They were posted by student ID. Jane looked at her grade and reported that she had received an A. Then she stepped back. I looked at mine and saw an embarrassing D. What I did not know was that she had somehow memorized my student ID number. She had come over earlier in the day to check her own grade and was aware of my pathetic performance. I have often wondered why she did not drop me at that point. If one of my granddaughters ever dated a guy who got a D in introductory psychology, I would have a sit-down talk to explain that this guy is a loser and the quicker she runs, the better. I'm very glad that Jane stuck with me. I later said that I got a D and a wife out of that class, so it was a good semester. In those days, people dated with the idea of getting married. So by the spring of 1962, we were ready to make the plunge. I had bought an engagement ring and had been carrying it around. It had a minuscule quarter-carat diamond, but based on what I was getting paid in my student job at the library, it had cost me 250 hours of work and reflected a great deal of serious affection on my part. Even though we could obviously afford something bigger today, she still has it. I took it with me to the annual dinner that her girl's dormitory held in Giant City State Park, Park, one of the most beautiful places in southern Illinois. The park had a lodge built during the Depression by the Civilian Conservation Corps. It had a wood interior, a big fireplace, and a balcony that looked out over the forest. It was a perfect place to propose, and when we took our turn on that balcony, Jane was definitely expecting a ring. The problem, from my point of view, was that it was obvious to everyone, including me, that this was the moment. It may have been petty and self-centered, but I suddenly felt that if I was going to give up my bachelorhood forever, not that it was worth much, I wanted it to be on my own terms. We went onto the balcony, stayed a while in that amazingly romantic setting, and then came back, the ring still in my pocket. It was a couple of weeks later that I proposed. We were walking on the extensive university farms one Friday night. It was chilly but not cold. There was a moon overhead. I had been carrying that ring around with me for weeks now and thought it was time to get, get on with it. My proposal was not eloquent or romantic. Somehow I've never been very good at those ritual occasions when there are things you're supposed to say because they have always been said. I just asked her if she would like to get married. It was the second time I had deprived her of a wonderful story to tell her grandchildren. First I passed at the lodge, now I just mumbled something about getting married. I did not get down on my knees or anything like that. I had also been so taken with the pleasant spring night and the beautiful moon overhead that I did not realize that we had wandered into the farm where they raised experimental pigs. Later, Jane was able to turn lemons into lemonade. She tells people that we met in an insane asylum and that I proposed to her in a pig pen. Both stories are true, so I can't really refute them. Still, over the years, I have come to think of this non-conventional proposal in a more philosophical way. Let me explain. As I see it, since life is sometimes a pig pen, this means that a pig pen is an excellent place for a proposal, since it teaches an important lesson about marital survival. If you can stay focused on the shining moon up above, you will not be inordinately distracted by the pig crap in which you are standing and might actually get through it. 
We were married on December 21st, 1962. It was a typical Southern Illinois wedding. There were 175 friends and family present. It was in Jane's Church, First Baptist of Carterville. Her uncle, Edward Williams, presided. The reception was in the church basement. Jane made her wedding dress. It was very beautiful, as was she. We spent our honeymoon in Paducah, Kentucky, just across the river. Jane and I have gotten through several decades of marriage. Over those decades, I've fallen in love with her not once, but several times, each time as if she were a new person. This was not a marriage made in heaven. It was a marriage made on earth. We built it, we sustained it, and once in a while, we patched it. In a few days, we will celebrate our 50th wedding anniversary. In honor of that occasion, and with great affection and appreciation for the amazing young woman who is willing to share her life with me, I'm going to reveal to you the most intimate thing I could reveal to anyone. I'm going to tell you our very favorite thing to do in bed. Don't read on if you think you might be embarrassed. Are you ready? Spooning. Well, there it is. I hope you appreciated this return to yesteryear when men were men and women were women and young guys who didn't have the slightest idea what they were doing could end up with an astonishing babe. I just wish I could include some photos of the young woman I married. She was and is spectacular both inside and out. And, oh, wait, Jane is here. She wants to say something. This is Jane. I grew up surrounded by girls. My father worked afternoons, and on weekdays, our household consisted of my mother, my sister, and myself. There were a few boys around, but I hadn't ever talked to them, although the neighborhood games of hide-and-seek included everyone. I had dated a fair amount, but was never really comfortable talking to boys. Suddenly, a person of the opposite sex appeared, catching up to me in Thompson Woods as I walked from sight class to my job in the office of the Dean of Fine Arts. Hey, Jane, how did you do on the exam? It's true. I asked if he was in my class, and somehow he kept appearing, seeming to be walking in the same direction after class. After I sat down on the bus for that field trip, I was pleased to see a familiar face coming toward me. I was even more pleased to chat with this thoughtful, compassionate individual I found myself walking with. The first date had the advantage of going to a basketball game, no talking required. But afterwards, in addition to hearing about his life, I was practically interviewed about everything in my own, no shy silence allowed. I walked into into the house that night feeling that I had never had such a wonderful conversation in my life, and the rest is history.